Over the last decade, Utah has grown faster than any other state in the nation. In fact, our growth rate is about two and a half times the national average, with no sign of slowing. That kind of growth would be a challenge for any state, but Utah has another distinction. We're one of the driest states in the nation. And so, we find ourselves in a predicament. Our growth means more individuals and families who need water, more businesses that use water, more food that has to be grown with water, and more irrigated land and homes and yards that all need water. On top of that, we're living the effects of varying precipitation and a changing climate. By the end of the century, we could have almost no snowpack and as much as 800,000 less acre-feet of surface water available to us. If you're keeping track, that's a full third of the amount of water we use in a year. So in 2013, and at the invitation of then-Governor Gary Herbert, Envision Utah pulled together the State Water Strategy Advisory Team to recommend steps to address all these challenges. It took until the summer of 2017 to finish, but the result is the State Water Strategy, a 50-year plan that outlines the steps and considerations and changes we need to ensure we have enough clean and affordable water in the future to sustain our thriving communities and a healthy and resilient natural environment. Even in the face of growth and a changing climate, we know where our water can come from and how we can have enough water for everyone who will call Utah home. The challenge now is putting this strategy into action. This is the Your Utah, Your Future podcast. Envision Utah's podcast about what it takes to make sure Utah is a great place to live now and for decades to come. And this is the final installment in our three-part series on water. In part one, we talked about Utah's hydrologic cycle and our dependence on snowpack. Part two was all about water rights and how water is used in the state. Today, we're talking about the state water strategy. If you haven't read the 200 pages of the state water strategy, it can be a little technical, and a lot of it is really directed at water managers and engineers and policymakers, but we're going to distill down the key principles, ideas, and themes that matter for all of us. So let's dive into what Utahns like you and me should know and think about for the future of water. Think of Utah's water supply like one big bucket of water. Right now, around 3 million people depend on that bucket. But in 50 years, we could be looking at double that number. So how do we stretch that same bucket of water to accommodate a continually growing population? One of the most obvious strategies is conservation. If we use less water, more stays in the bucket to be used in other ways. Pretty straightforward, right? But to use less, we have to know how much we're using in the first place. The state water strategy includes several conservation recommendations around water measurement because even today, in 2021, we're not where we need to be. Sometimes it's literally just a canvas dam in a ditch and amount of water that's calculated that would flow over that canvas dam. If you listened to our last episode, you already met Teresa Wilhelmsen, the state engineer and head of the Division of Water Rights. Unfortunately, the rather primitive system for measuring water that she described is still in use in parts of Utah. But there are evolving technologies, too. In a lot more sophisticated systems, we actually have telemetry that does real-time reporting of what water is being diverted. Now, of course, that costs money, and not every system can afford the Cadillac you know, type measurement. The goal is to measure water use accurately and in real time to help ensure water users stay within their allotted rights. And it's critical in drought years like 2021 to ensure priority rights and priority cuts are being followed. 
We are making progress. For instance, the Division of Water Rights recently developed real-time reporting systems, like their distribution accounting model, which is displayed on their website, so on any given day, water users can see what water rights are on and what water rights have faced cuts. But there's still a need for better measurement, and it's not just at the state level. It matters for residents as well. Our number one water development project for this district is water conservation and driving down that per capita use so that there's more of the existing supplies to go to other newcomers. Tage Flint runs the Weber Basin Conservancy District and was one of three co-chairs on the state water strategy advisory team. His biggest challenge is that in Davis and Weber counties, like other counties in Utah, irrigation is unmetered or unmeasured. Currently, 60% of Utah's residential water use is used for outdoor irrigation. Think grass, gardens, basically anything in your yard. If we're not measuring that for individual residents, how do we know what to conserve, or even if we're conserving when we try? To address this, the Weber Basin Conservancy District recently installed over 12,000 magnetic meters to measure water use and inform and educate users on their usage. Results couldn't be any better. I wouldn't have guessed it to start with, but we're running well over 20% reduction in the use of someone who has a meter versus someone who does not, without charging them any differently. Just the education alone has created a lot better water user. 20% less water being used, simply by measuring it and paying attention to how much is being used. Now, whether you have metering or not, simply cutting back the amount of water you use in your yard is one of the biggest and simplest things Utahns can do to conserve water. For example, eliminating one watering session per week can save about 3,000 gallons for the average quarter-acre yard. Want to take it even further? Consider xeriscaping your yard. We're going to pause for a moment. What some of you just heard was xeriscaping. What I said was... Xeriscaping. Xeriscaping means using water-efficient landscaping. It doesn't mean zero landscaping or zero plants or have anything to do with zero. What we are talking about is localizing your yard for Utah's climate by landscaping with native plant species. These plants require less water and still maintain curb appeal. You can even xeriscape and keep your grass. The idea is that you group your lawn into a centralized shape instead of just default ground cover. This gives more space for planter beds to be filled with brightly colored native plants that will do better with less care and less water. You can visit localscapes.com to learn more about water-wise landscaping and see examples of these principles in practice. Conservewater.utah.gov also has an extensive list of resources and actions individuals can take to reduce their water use, including a weekly lawn watering guide and a water use calculator. And even if you're a Utah who doesn't have a yard, you can still make a difference by updating your home's appliances with the most efficient models. For example, updating your home with water-wise toilets can save more than 9,000 gallons of water per year. And replacing your washing machine with a water-wise model can save over 11,000 gallons of water per year. All this is to say, individuals putting in the effort to conserve water will go a long way. Agriculture is another huge consideration as we look to the future, and a very important piece of the state water strategy. It can also be pretty polarizing. See, Utah agriculture uses 82% of our state's diverted water supply. So when we're in a drought and residents are asked to let their lawns turn brown, it's easy to look at the agriculture portion of Utah's big bucket of water and say, let's just use less there. But in the Your Utah, Your Future vision for agriculture, Utahns overwhelmingly said agriculture is a high priority. 
Utahns want food production to keep up with population growth, and they want local food production to make up a bigger share of the food we consume. Plus, some analysis has found agriculture to be responsible for contributing $21 billion to our state's economy. Not to mention, it supplies 25,000 jobs and $320 million in wages. Then, of course, we also have to remember that many farms have water rights that date back 100 years or more. And aside from priority cuts made when water supply is low, these landowners have an enshrined right to use a certain amount of water. The task, then, is to optimize agricultural water use. Again, here's Teresa Wilhelmson. So I think what I've seen is a lot of effort in the agricultural community to look at conservation and optimization. What I see is an effort to be aware of the resource that's available and what can be done within their water right. Warren Peterson, who you also met last episode, shared similar thoughts. The technology moves. Farmers move with the technology. They try to be responsible about their water use. At this point, no one pays farmers to put in better water systems, ones that are more efficient in that true sense of efficiency. No one pays farmers to be more efficient, but still they do it. For the most part, it's just who they are. Think of it this way. Even in the heat of this last summer, in a terrible drought year, most Utah residents didn't have any restrictions on their water, just some encouragement to use less. People with water rights did have restrictions, though. Cuts to their allocation that either force them to be more efficient or at least make the need for efficiency very clear. So, since it doesn't look like we're going to be eliminating agricultural water use anytime soon, let's get down to brass tacks. How do we optimize agricultural water? Again, an important step in the state water strategy is measurement. We want to understand what is the amount of water used in agriculture and how will that look in the future. And that being said, it's a little bit difficult to do that because there's not meters on every single headgate. So one of the things that we have is a irrigated land use program. That's Candace Hassenjäger, director of the Division of Water Resources. This irrigated land use program uses satellite imagery to collect data on what types of crops are being irrigated and the estimated water use on those crops. We call this our water budget model. So it's a, you know, like a 30,000 foot model of the state where we're trying to understand what is that water use, how much is, you know, estimated to be depleted, and then how much returns back to the system. This water budget model is key to optimizing water use. Beyond that, individual farms can reduce the amount of water they use through efficient irrigation systems. You can think of agricultural irrigation efficiency as a pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid, you have the least efficient irrigation methods. That includes sprinklers. These can lose up to 50% of water just through evaporation. Side note, residential sprinklers are also that inefficient. Above that, we have flood irrigation. Flood irrigation has a bad rap, but old critiques did not take into account unused water that doesn't just disappear. In fact, the return flow can make its way back through the cycle of river to farm to river as many as seven times. One level up in about the center of the pyramid, we have LEPA irrigation. LEPA stands for Low Energy Precision Application. This loses as little as 2 to 5% of water to evaporation. It does this by taking sprinklers or bubblers and hanging them low to the ground so they can deliver water closer to the base of the plant. It also delivers water in bigger droplets so that less water evaporates. Most farms in Utah actually use this system. Then near the top of the pyramid is precision mobile drip irrigation, which can be 100% efficient by delivering drips of water right where it needs to go. The downside is that it's much more costly than LEPA to install. 
Finally, at the top of the pyramid, we have indoor farming. It's a modernized practice that requires less land and less water, and you can control the climate a little bit. But it's expensive, and there's a bit of a learning curve, so it's not widely practiced in Utah. There has been recent legislation that has provided grants to help farmers optimize their water systems, but the applications far exceed the funding available. And so our greatest agricultural strategies moving forward today are to support more optimization projects, refer to and continue updating the water budget model, update to the most efficient irrigation systems, and at some point in the future, we'll need to use more indoor farming techniques. In our last few podcast episodes, we've talked at length about how it's not just the people of Utah who need water, but our natural systems need water too. That's another one of the major themes in the state water strategy, preserving natural systems and protecting water quality. A key strategy in that vein is to maintain sufficient stream flows and lake levels to sustain water quality and healthy ecosystems. Since the release of the state water strategy, we've seen several actions taken across the state to work towards this, especially in regard to the Great Salt Lake. Legislation in 2019 created a steering group that went on to issue a report with 60 recommendations for addressing declining lake levels. Those recommendations laid the foundation for two key projects, a study on how groundwater gets to the Great Salt Lake and a project that helps cities incorporate smart water planning into their land use and economic planning processes. And the efforts have not been isolated to the legislature. Just this year, Kennecott Copper Mine donated some of its water rights to the Great Salt Lake. In essence, they said, we're not going to use our full allocation, so we want the amount that we have rights to use to flow through the Jordan River to Farmington Bay without anyone else using it. Remember how we talked about beneficial use in our last episode? This is the first time in water rights history that contributing to lake level alone has been the beneficial use. Over the next 10 years, approximately 21,000 acre-feet of water will be delivered to the lake annually thanks to those water right donations. This is known as water banking. Water banking are institutional mechanisms with rules that are established for people to forego use of their water for a short period of time to put it in a bank and to let someone else use it. It's a transfer mechanism for water on a more temporary basis than water sales, which occur on a more permanent basis. Yet another voice you'll recognize from prior episodes, that is Dr. Joanna Enterwada, a professor in the Department of Environment and Society at Utah State University. This kind of banking is not just limited to keeping water in ecosystems. For example, farmers who know they won't use as much water as they're granted in their water rights can water bank to farmers further downstream who might need more. It's a modern way to move water efficiently and legally, and it's helping to keep water in critical ecosystems like the Great Salt Lake. Which leads us to something we know many of you are wondering about, water projects like the Bear River Development that would divert water from flowing into natural places like the Great Salt Lake. What role do these play in the future? Water infrastructure is a major theme in the state water strategy, including the impacts of investing in water projects such as the Bear River Development and the Lake Powell Pipeline. Big water projects can often be expensive and controversial, but even the Division of Water Resources, that's the state agency in charge of both projects, recognizes that we can push back the need for such projects if conservation efforts improve. Again, Candace Hassenjäger. We are continuing to work on large development projects that are part of our state statutes, like the Lake Powell Pipeline and the Bear River Development. The Bear River Development is an interesting one. That 
statute was passed in 1991 and at the time the projected need was 2015 for Bear River development. Due to the great conservation efforts that have been done, we've been able to push that off to about 2050 is the projected need. The division is still buying right-of-way to try and get ahead of development since we currently still anticipate a need for that project in the future. But if Utahns made a concerted effort to conserve water, we could keep pushing that need further and further into the future and keep big water projects as a last-case scenario. You might have noticed that this series on water has been a little more spread out than our series on air quality. Maybe we should have learned our lesson from the process to create the state water strategy, but water is a huge and complex topic. It's tough to boil down something like the state water strategy, but here again are some key principles. Conservation is key. We have to find ways to use less so we can accommodate our future growth. To conserve, we need accurate real-time measurement. And individuals, families, businesses all need to find ways to reduce their use. Agriculture is an important part of Utah and our economy, but we need to optimize ag water use and transition to more modern farming techniques. Maintaining ecosystems, including lake levels, is a beneficial use and a very important one that needs as much consideration as other uses. And water projects take decades to prepare for, but they've been pushed back, and our hope is to keep pushing them back by reducing the need for these projects. There's one last theme that came up in many of the interviews we did for this episode. If we want to see these strategies work, if we want to have enough water and food for future generations, it's going to take a lot more than the application of practical solutions. It will take a shift in how all Utahns value water. Again, Dr. Enderwada. I think we all need to think really carefully about the culture of water. What does water mean to us? How do we value it? Are we appropriately valuing that resource and the luxury we have in having it made available to us in such a convenient manner in an arid region? And Warren Peterson invoked Adam Smith. And he said, water is essential to life. Diamonds are not. Why are diamonds more valuable than water? Well, because of their scarcity. But now we're realizing just how scarce water can be, and we have to change our, just our entire attitude and relationship toward water. The future of water will affect our economy, our health, our state's beauty, and every aspect of life as Utahns know it. It will take state agencies, nonprofits, policymakers, planners, education systems, and individuals to work together to conserve, to optimize, and to plan for a future where we value our limited water supply enough to stretch it to meet the needs of all those who call Utah home. And we need to do this all while sustaining businesses, agriculture, and a healthy and resilient natural environment. It's a tall order, but we have the roadmap to do it. Thank you for listening to the Your Utah, Your Future podcast. You can catch all three episodes in our water series, as well as all past and future episodes on our website, envisionutah.org, or on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Stay tuned for our next episodes, where we'll be talking about the big one, a magnitude 7.0 earthquake along the Wasatch Front, and how prepared we are or are not for a major earthquake. Special thanks to all of the experts who joined us for our water series, but especially in today's episode, Teresa Wilhelmsen, Tage Flint, Dr. Enterwada, Warren Peterson, and Candace Hassenjäger. If you want to learn more about the future of water in Utah, you can visit envisionutah.org to check out the state water strategy. This podcast is an Envision 
Envision Utah production made possible by Envision Utah supporters and the many, many Utahns who have worked with us on water issues over more than two decades. This episode was written and produced by Shayla Adams with Nate Brown and me, Jason Brown. Be sure to share this with your friends and family, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and join us next time as we dive into disaster resilience in Utah.